want to tell you a story. A story of a little boy who made a little sailboat. And he put all his effort and time into it. He put a little sail on it. He decorated it. He strengthened it. Till one day he looked at it and said, you are ready. This is mine. I'm so proud of the boat that I have made. And so on one day when it looked like it wasn't going to rain, he goes to Whitbank Dam. And he decides he's going to sail his little boat. He ties a string on it. The water's all calm. And he lets it go out into the dam. And he walks down on the shoreline, just looking at his little sailboat with pride just bursting in his heart until unexpectedly, out of nowhere, a gust of wind comes. <sighs> can see, I've got kids right now. And it breaks the string. And he is panicked it's too far to swim out to it, and he can't get to it, and it's not coming towards him. It's going away from him, and so he stands there with a broken heart, looking at his little boat that he's made with so much pride, just going off into the distance on the horizon until he can't see it anymore, and his boat is gone. So he leaves Whipping Dam very sad, brokenhearted, devastated. A few weeks later, he's in the mall, and he's walking past a toy shop, and he does a double take at the window. This can't be. How is this? That's my boat in the window of the toy shop. And he knows it's his. He knows the designs and the decorations and the effort and his personal touch he put into the boat. So he goes into the store and he says to the store owner, sir, that boat, it's mine. I made it. The store owner looks at him and says, well, son, well done. You did a magnificent job but now it's mine. And if you want it, there's a price. The boy leaves the shop. He's, he's devastated again. He doesn't have the money to pay for this, but he's determined to get it back. And so he goes and he gets chores. He gets little garden jobs and he saves all his pocket money and he doesn't buy tuck ship and he doesn't splurge it. He's saving for his boat until the day he runs back into the toy store and he throws his money down on the counter and he says to the store owner, I want to buy back the boat that's mine. The store owner congratulates him and he gives him the boat and the little boy holds the boat up and he says, you're mine twice. You're mine because I made you and now you're mine because I bought you. And that is a picture of our salvation. You and I belong to Jesus because he made us and we belong to him because he bought us. He bought you. He bought me. We purchased. He purchased us with a price. Look at someone and say, you were made and you were bought. You know, we've already seen in the book of Colossians, in Colossians 1.16, we've already seen how Jesus made us, how it says that all things were made for him and all things were made through him to his glory. But today we're going to see that the story does not end there. The story of our faith doesn't end at our creation. It continues to our purchase. And we were purchased with the blood of Jesus Christ at the cross. The cross is the central point, the central figure of the entire scripture. It's what our faith is based on. In fact, 20 to 40% of every gospel you read, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, just deals with this one moment. The cross, Jesus himself in the book of Revelation, it says he's a lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world, right? In other words, even the entire Old Testament, it all points to 
the cross, the cross is the central thing. That's why Jesus tells us to do what we did today, to come around the Lord's table often, as often as you meet. He says, come together often and do this in remembrance of me. In other words, he's saying, don't forget about the cross. The cross makes all the difference. The cross is a central part of our faith. And we've already seen, church, we've already seen in scripture how there were false teachers in the church in Colossus. And they were teaching that the cross was not enough. They were teaching, you've got to add to the cross. You've got to add to what Jesus did. And they were saying, you've got to add human philosophy and human ideas, right? You've got to strive with these human concepts. And we've seen, hey, that, that's not true. But they weren't just teaching that you have to add human philosophy. These false teachers were teaching other things we're going to see today. They were told to add to Jesus. So we're going to pick this up together in the book of Colossians uh, chapter 2, and let's read together from verse 11. It says this. When you came to Christ, you were circumcised, but not by a physical procedure. Christ performed a spiritual circumcision by cutting away of your sinful nature. Paul was touching on one of the things these false teachers were teaching they were teaching that in order to become a Christian, you also needed to go through the Jewish custom of circumcision, which I'm sure I don't really have to explain to you, but I'll just say that Jewish custom was when a boy was eight days old, he would have to have the foreskin removed. Circumcision, it was supposed to symbolize the cutting away of the fleshly nature, the cutting away of the sinful nature. It was supposed to symbolize covenant with God. But the problem is this. Rituals cannot save you. A ritual cannot save you. And yet this church was teaching that in order to be saved, you needed to perform some kind of ritual on top of the cross, on top of Jesus. And Paul saying, no, like, guys, the cross is enough. You don't need to add rituals. These people were teaching that you would still need to go through circumcision, that you would still need to do something in order to make you even more holy. And we have to remember that the moment we start adding to the gospel, it's dangerous. It's dangerous. We don't have to go through ceremony. We don't have to trust in rituals to save us. Jesus has done the work. And, and we can get lost in this even now in our New Testament faith, just like the church in Colossae did. Like we can get think, hey, the rituals have saved me. I'm saved, you know, because I know my baptism date and I do communion once a week and I have a quiet time twice a day and that saves me. Well, that doesn't save you. Those things are great and you should do them, but they do not provide salvation. The only thing that saves is the cross of Jesus Christ. That is where our salvation lies. Rituals cannot save you. We don't have to add ceremony to make us holy. Paul goes on to say in verse 12 of Colossians 2, for you were buried with Christ when you were baptized and with them you were raised to New life, because you trusted in the mighty power of God who raised Christ from the dead. You were dead. What were you? You were dead because of your sins and because your sinful nature was not yet cut away. But then God made you alive with Christ, for he forgave all of our sins. Paul presses down on the state you were in before you met Jesus Christ. And what was that state? What were you like before you met Jesus? You were dead. It turns out unbelievers are not sick. They're dead. 
They don't need a self-help course, church. They don't need some well-adjusted psychology. You know what they need? A resurrection. And the thing about being dead is that you can't help yourself. You can't think and you can't feel. You can't get yourself out of that position. That is why we need Jesus to provide a spiritual resurrection for us, and he's done it. When he kicked open that tomb, he did it. He defeated death and offers that same victory to you and to me. What we need is a resurrection, and it's only provided through Jesus Christ. There was a, someone who said this. I love this quote. You can put a person in school, and all you'll get is an educated sinner. You can put a person in therapy, and all you'll get is a well-adjusted sinner. You can stick a person in church, and all you'll get is a religious sinner. You have to take the person to the cross to get a safe sinner. Amen? Church, that's what Jesus did for us. That's what it's all about. That's why we come and remember the cross. It says that he made you alive. He made you alive. The resurrection, we can identify not just with the death and the burial of Jesus, but the resurrection of Jesus. It's the exact reason, like Paul says, we go through baptism. Baptism doesn't make you alive. The ritual doesn't save. Baptism is a symbol of what has already happened inside it's an example of what's an outward example of what's happened spiritually. That's why we identify with the death and burial of Jesus as we go underneath the water. And we identify with the resurrection of Jesus as we come up out of the water. Because Jesus did not leave us dead. He made us alive. And how did he make you alive? It says he cut off the thing that was causing death. He provided a spiritual circumcision for you. What was the thing in your life causing death? Well, it happened to be your sin. Your sinful nature, it has been cut off. Praise God for that, church. It's been cut off. And so you've been made alive. How did he do it? By forgiving all of your sins. And it says he forgave them all. Every single one, it's gone. Even that one you're probably thinking of right now that you think God can't get over. He's over it. He's just waiting for you to get over it. All your sins are forgiven. Look at someone and say, all your sins are forgiven. They're all gone. It turns out forgiveness was our greatest need, church. And forgiveness has been God's greatest accomplishment. He's given us that forgiveness. He goes on to say in verse 14, that he canceled the record of the charges against us and he took it away by nailing it on the cross. I believe Paul is referring here to a Greek custom, a way of doing business. In those days, if you took a loan from someone, if you got into debt, they would issue you with a certificate of debt. And this certificate would stand between you and the lender and until that debt was paid off, things between you and that person weren't quite right. But when you got the money to pay off that debt, what they would give you, they would publicly go and put a certificate of settlement in a public place. And on that certificate, it said, would say, paid in full. And we have to believe, and we've got to know that we had a debt against God. Our sin stood in debt. Our failing stood in debt against him. It was a debt we could not pay. So Jesus came and he took away the debt. But when he took it away, he paid it in full. There is nothing left behind. He, he hung on the cross and he said these words, it is finished. The work is done. The spiritual circumcision has happened. You don't have to add ritual to it. You can't do anything by yourself. There's nothing you can add to the finished work of the cross. The work is done. 
Her sins have been paid for. He goes on to say in verse 15, and in this way, he disarmed. Everyone say disarmed. He disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities, and he shamed them publicly by his victory over them on the cross. I love that the devil is disarmed, that the enemy is disarmed. You know, that means that the weapons formed against you were removed. Have you ever been in a relationship with someone and they happen to bring up all your dirt when you fight? You know, as they get in a relationship with you, they kind of keep an account of all the things you've done wrong. And when they're angry with you, they pull out the list. You know what we call that? Ammunition. Hey, remember when you did this? Remember how you did that? Remember when you said you are change and you're still the same? We're like, here's my list. It's my ammunition against you. Do you know that the devil's being disarmed? That list has been taken away. There are no sins he can hold against you. Nothing. He's being disarmed. The ammunition is gone. There isn't a list of things he can try and condemn you only if you allow him. But there is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ. There is no list against you. It's gone. It's been paid for. The debt has been settled. It's gone. Isn't that beautiful? He's been disarmed. That ammunition's been taken away. He's got no dirt on you. Look at someone and say, the devil's got no dirt on you. Isn't that a wonderful church? And then he talks about these, and he references rulers and authorities. This phrase, rulers and authorities, is used six times in the New Testament. And it always refers to demonic activity, the fallen angels, the evil angels, the, one who's, the, 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 the demons who come and harass us and tempt us and torment us, right? And he says about this enemy force, these rulers and authorities, that they have been publicly shamed. Do you know that at the cross of Jesus Christ, they were publicly shamed, publicly shamed. I, I think that Jesus did a victory lap on that cross because as he hung there and said, it is finished. You know another translation for that? It's checkmate, Satan. Checkmate. You thought you had the last move? <laughs> you don't know what you just done. Because of this moment, I can now forgive sins. These sins that have been holding people captive, the grasp that you have held people in, the lies that you've held them captive to, I can now provide them freedom. Because of this moment, it is finished. Checkmate, Satan. He publicly shamed them. And I know what you're probably thinking. You're probably hearing this and thinking, well, that's great in principle, but my life feels like they're pretty much active. Like, they don't feel disarmed. They're attacking me and they're tempting me, and I'm like... I can see their activity in my life. And that is true. The enemy and the rulers and authorities are still active today. But here's what Paul is saying. Is that at the end of everything, church, you don't have to fear the outcome of what's happening. The only one who has to fear the outcome is the devil and rulers and authorities of the unseen world. They are fearing the outcome because they know there is a day, according to Revelations, it tells us in Revelations 20 that there's a day coming when the devil, who is a great deceiver, will be cast into a lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are, and they will be tormented there day and night forever. That is the parade that's on its way, our public victory parade. And so, yes, do the demons and Satan, do they hassle you and torment you and irritate you? Yes. But guess what? 
No matter how active they are, no matter what they do, no matter how much you fall and you groan and you pain in this life, they cannot take that victory away. No matter what they do, no matter how many times you miss, there's one thing they cannot take, and that is your salvation. As long as you believe in Jesus Christ and follow him, Jesus will get you to heaven. That victory is established. It is secure. Nothing can rob you of that. That's why Paul says in Romans 8 that I am more than a conqueror. I just, I have victory. I've, I've abundant victory. In spite of all of these things, I'm more than a conqueror. And so in this short phase, Paul was using all these different metaphors to point to this one thing, the cross. He's looking at, hey, it's like circumcision and it's, it's like baptism. It's, it's like a resurrection. It's like a financial transaction. It's like a victory in a war. It's almost like Paul was knowing that so many people could be reading this. Maybe it's going to be a military person or a Jewish person or an accountant, right? And no matter who you are, hopefully you can find a metaphor that relates to you and teaches you about the cross because Paul was reminding us that the cross is enough. And he's driving that point home because this church was not just teaching about circumcision being the thing you need. They were not to try add a whole lot of other things to the cross, the finished work of the cross. In Colossians 2 verse 16, it says, So don't let anyone condemn you for what you eat or what you drink or for not celebrating certain holy days or new moon ceremonies or Sabbaths. For these rules are only shadows of the reality yet to come. And Christ himself is that reality. Paul was first warning the church about adding rituals to our faith. Rituals do not save. Now he's warning them about adding legalism to your faith. The truth is church, legalism, obeying the law to the T, does not save you. Look at someone and say, legalism doesn't save. You could say that legalism is a religion of human achievement. Salvation by good works, by my works. And Paul was saying, hey, that doesn't save you. Yes, it's, it's good for your life to bear good fruit of you to do good deeds, but that is not where your salvation lies. Legalism, following these things, cannot save you. At the end of the day, church, in reality, there's actually only two religions. Because you can boil down all religions to one core thing, whether it's based, number one, in column one, on human achievement, or column two, on God's achievement. You know there are over 10,000 religions in this world. Every single one of them falls in column one. I am saved by human achievement. My efforts get me in right standing with God. And if I live right and do right, I earn his approval. I earn his love. And he might give me a home in the end. Every religion except for one falls in column one. There's only one religion that falls in column two, where it's based on God's achievement. Any guess which one that is? Ours. Christianity. Christianity is based on God's achievement. It's God saying, I will do the work for you that you cannot do. I'll get you there because you can't. What you need is a savior. What you need is a Messiah. What you need is for someone to pay this debt for you because it's way too large for you to pay. Column one or two, which one do you want? Do you want to get to the end? 
based on your achievement or based on God's because I know I want to get there based on God's. I know my achievement's not enough. Church, there's only one. It's just Christianity. It, this is the only, only faith that is true. It's also the reason why it's the only faith that's constantly attacked. Have you noticed that? How often like Hollywood and things just attack the faith? Well, we're not seeing like award shows and music videos kind of demeaning any other religion except for one. Which one? Christianity. Why? It's the only one that's true. The devil's not worried about the others. They're in his camp. He's not going to attack them. He's worried about the one that's true, the faith of Jesus Christ. And so Paul's saying, hey, you don't have to add legalism to this. Jesus saves you. You don't save you. And then he breaks it down into two categories, diet and days. Everyone say diet and days. Let's break it down first, speaking about diets. Paul's saying, don't let them condemn you for what you eat or what you drink. And it seems like what these false teachers were preaching is that to be saved, you had to live again under the Old Testament law. Specifically, probably referring to Leviticus chapter 11, where it lists the things we may not eat, things that defile you or make you unholy. Things like pork, goodbye bacon, right? That's devastating. Or ham, no scallops, no crabs, no lobsters, no bats. Uh, okay. No badgers, no camels, no lizards, and no rats. I will say this, a few things on this list. I didn't have to be commanded not to eat. I wasn't going to eat it anyway. But let me tell you, there is nothing in the New Testament that prohibits you from eating any kind of food. There is no dietary prohibition in the New Testament scripture. That is all part of the old covenant. We are in a new agreement, a brand new covenant. In fact, Jesus said there is nothing that enters a man from the outside that can defile him. What defiles you is what comes out of your heart, not what you put into your body. Legalism does not save church. And this must have been earth-shattering news to the Jews who practice a kosher law, Right? This must mean like, what? The Messiah is saying it doesn't matter what I eat? Are you kidding me? Whew. Paul says in Romans 14 verse 17, For the kingdom of God is not a matter of what we eat or drink, but of living a life of goodness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. So, diet can't make you holy. That's why I don't diet. <clears throat> Thank you, Monica. It's not why. Okay, diet can't make you holy. The next thing was days. Can days make you holy? And he mentions a few festival celebrations and new moon celebrations, which were celebrations that happen like once a year, uh, and Sabbaths. And contrary to what some people think, there is nothing in the New Testament that tells Christians that they are required to keep the Sabbath day. Now, traditionally, the Sabbath was a Saturday Sabbath that started on Friday sunset ended Saturday sunset. But there's nothing in the New Testament in our covenant with Christ where we are required to keep that Sabbath. Is there wisdom about resting? Absolutely. Right? But we are not under Sabbath law anymore. In fact, the early church very quickly changed what they called their day of worship, Sabbath, to a Sunday in order to commemorate the resurrection which happened on a Sunday. This was supposed to be in, in cele celebration of the resurrection this gathering together on Sundays. 
So we see that there's no requirement for us to have the specific day that we have to call a day of worship or Sabbath. In fact, Paul actually says you can choose any day you want. In Romans 14 verse 5, he says in the same way, some think one day is more holy than another, while others think every day is alike. You should each be fully convinced that whichever day you choose is acceptable. You know why? Because it doesn't really matter. Legalism cannot save you. How you treat the Sabbath cannot save you. For some of you, you might think the day of worship is a Sunday. Clearly, a lot of you do because you're here. That's great. You might bump into someone, by the way, who thinks it's a Friday or a Saturday. Don't argue with them. Let them think that. Right, and like Paul says, there's some days they think every day's alike. That's like me. Right, I think you should worship in the house of God on Sunday and Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and Friday and Saturday. That's why we have a church like we do. And if you disagree with me, it's okay. You just got to be fully convinced with what you believe because actually this stuff doesn't save you. The diet you keep and the days that you honor or see as days of worship do not save you. And here's why. In the next verse, he says in verse 17, for these rules are only shadows. Everyone say, it's only a shadow. A shadow of the reality yet to come. And Christ himself is that reality. Colossians 2.17. Christ himself is that reality. Now, I want you to think of the difference between a shadow and a reality. First of all, a shadow has no reality. But realities cast a shadow, right? And so why would we embrace the shadow when we could have the reality? Why would you go home and hug the shadow of your wife when you can hug the real thing? Why would you pat the shadow of your dog? When you could pat the real thing, why would you eat the shadow of your Steersburger? When you could have the real thing, probably healthier for you, but it's of no use. Because shadows do nothing. They do nothing. Legalism is like a shadow. It's shadow living. And you're, you're missing the real thing. This is about Jesus. He is the reality. He's the one we need to embrace. And we need to step out of the shadows and into the sun light, the S-O-N light, the Jesus light, right? We need to embrace him. Don't get lost in all this nonsense about the things that you think you need to do in order to be good enough to be saved. You are saved by the cross. Colossians 2.18 goes on to say, So don't let anyone condemn you by insisting on pious self-denial or the worship of angels, Colossians 2.18, saying that they have visions about these things. Their sinful minds have made them proud. Hmm. We sing that rituals do not save you and legalism does not save you, but Paul touches on one last thing here, and that's mysticism does not save you. Everyone say, look at someone saying, mysticism cannot save you. You know what mysticism is? It's a feeling of deep spiritual connection that you pursue from the inside, right? Where rituals and legalism is all about the outside act, what we can see, mysticism is about how I feel about something. It's about connection. It's about my perception. And my perception creates 
the reality around me, if I can perceive it and feel it enough. And look, looking and, and desiring deeper spiritual connection is a good thing. But some people look so deep, they fall off the deep end. Right? And, and Paul is saying that the words he uses is that it says sinful minds. And it says that this makes him proud. They're so proud of their mystic thoughts and their ideologies of, oh, you can just do this and you find deeper spiritual connection and you go through here when you, you know, hum at that rock and, oh, you just feel like. And it's, he said, you don't need that. You don't need, it's just, your feelings don't create reality. It's all made up. It's all made up. It's, your faith is not about your mood and your intuition. And listen, those things are pers- or are all subjective. And if you want a faith that is in trouble, let your feelings lead your faith. You are, you are sure to shipwreck your faith. I promise you, church. You will probably never feel like loving your enemy or forgiving those who hurt you. Let your feelings determine your faith and you are in for trouble. There is a lot we got to do that you will not feel like doing. Mysticism and the pursuit of spiritual bubbly goosebump feelings will not provide for you a solid scriptural foundation for you to build a faith life on. For those of you far more concerned by, you know, oh, my whole faith experience is about like just having these moments in worship where I can like just feel God and, and like that is the only thing you're pursuing and you're ignoring the word of God or like allowing his word to transform you or sitting with his word you're missing it. Like our faith is not about our feelings. And yes, God wants to redeem our feelings. All the fruit of the Spirit is feelings. He wants to make you more loving and peaceful and patient and kind and good and faithful and self-controlled. That's great, but, but our faith cannot be feelings-led. It's so dangerous on every level, by the way, even in society. And we're seeing, by the way, a lot more of this feelings-driven reality in our society today. Not just in spirituality, surely in spirituality, as there is a push towards kind of away from what people see as institutionalized religion, people are moving a lot more to the mystics and to spirituality and sensing and get this and do this. But even within things as simple as gender identity, people are allowing these things to come in where it's more about what I feel. And then you better affirm my perception. And if you don't, man, you're in trouble. And so if I feel like a cat, you got to call me that. And if I'm a boy who feels like a girl, you got to call me that, right? It's all about kind of what I'm feeling. And it's, we reject like reality and biology and science. Be, it, why? Because we are elevating mysticism above the truth. And if you do that in any part of your life, your life is in trouble. In fact, there's this great saying uh, by this guy called Dwight Longenecker. And he says these words. I'm going to put it on the screen. He says, first we overlook evil, then we permit evil, then we legalize evil, then we promote evil, then we celebrate evil, and then we persecute those who still call it evil. Isn't that good? Isn't that what's happened? This is a warning, by the way, of Paul to this church. Right? He's like, guys, do not allow mysticism to to rise up within these these sinful mind ideas that make people proud, like don't allow that because if you, if you just allow that soon, that's going to become the, the norm and the reality and you'll be persecuted for saying anything different. What was happening in that church is very often happening today. And, and one of the things that Paul 
addresses and he calls out is the worship of angels. And this is a good time just to mention that Scripture strictly forbids the worshiping of angels in many parts of Scripture, right? We see even when Jesus is tempted by the devil in the desert, and he, he says, Jesus affirms, you may only worship the Lord your God, no one else. We see in the book of Revelations, chapter 19, where uh, John, the apostle, is having an angelic encounter, and he falls on his face, and he wants to worship the angel. What does the angel say to him? No, don't worship me. I'm a, he says, I'm a fellow brethren. Don't worship me. Right? And so part of mysticism, and if you have people like, I've had a vision, and we've got to do this, we've got to do this, in order to get to a higher spiritual plane, no, you don't. The cross is enough. It is finished. It is finished. You don't have to add rituals. You don't have to add legalism. And you certainly don't have to add mysticism to the work that is already done. And so Paul wraps up all these thoughts with this line in verse 19. He says, They are not connected to Christ, who is the head of the body. For he holds a whole body together with its joints and ligaments. And it grows as God nourishes it. Can we put that up there, Colossians 2.19? Do you know what real spiritual growth is? Real spiritual growth, church, comes from connection to Christ. And if you want to grow spiritually, there is no other way but connection to Christ. If you want to grow spiritually, Scripture is saying, hey, you don't need all this other stuff. If you want to have a deeper walk with God, you don't need human philosophy and some kind of ritual to perform and some kind of legalism to obey and some kind of mysticism to feel. No, you need Christ. You need the cross. And the cross is enough. And the cross completes the work. And the cross is all you need. It doesn't matter how many tattoos you have. And it doesn't matter whether you celebrate Christmas Day on December the 25th. It doesn't matter if you eat Easter eggs at Christmas or at Easter or at Christmas. It just... This is nonsense. Like, it just doesn't matter. The stuff doesn't affect us. What matters is our connection to Jesus Christ. We must not make the faith about rituals and diets and days. Amen? We've got to stay true to the cross. In fact, what Paul's really preaching here against is this Jesus plus mentality. Jesus plus ceremony. Jesus plus circumcision. Jesus plus baptism. Jesus plus personal holiness. Jesus plus religious activity. He's like, no, 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 no. Jesus plus something equals nothing. But Jesus plus nothing equals everything. We've got to add nothing to Jesus. He's enough. Look at someone and say, Jesus plus something is nothing. Look at them and again say, Jesus plus nothing is everything. In other words, add nothing to Jesus. Church, All we need is Jesus. He is a central figure. He is the reality. Everything else we try to make this faith about is just a shadow. Get out of the shadow lands and embrace Jesus Christ. You need nothing else for holiness. You need nothing else for salvation, but Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior of your life. He's the one we need to follow. He's the one we need to live after, just Jesus. I want to read to you what someone wrote about the difference between a religion and the gospel. It's so powerful. It says, religion is man's quest for God, but the gospel is God's quest for man. All religion comes from earth, but the gospel comes from heaven. Religion is a story of what sinful man tries to do for a holy God, but the gospel is a story 
of what a holy God has done for sinful man. Religion has good views, but the gospel is good news. There are many religions, but there is only one gospel. The religion is man-made, but the gospel is a gift of God, and it is free, and all you have to do is receive it. So let me remind you that without Christ, you were dead. And what you needed was a resurrection. And so Jesus Christ, he gave that to you. And now you are his twice. You're his because he made you. And you're his because he bought you. And you don't need to add anything to that. You don't need to add rituals to that. Or legalism to that. Or mysticism to that. Because Jesus plus nothing is everything. That is all we need. Can I pray for you, church? God, I want to pray for your people who I know you love so deeply, Lord. I pray, Father God, that you create in us a pure faith. Pure faith, Lord, where we just make it about you, not our achievements, not some ritual, not some deep mystical nonsense we've come up with in our own minds, Lord. We just want you, Jesus. We just need you, Lord. God, I'm so grateful that we don't come to you through our own efforts. I'm so glad that we don't have to save ourselves because I don't know of anyone who could, Lord. We need you, Jesus. We need saving. And God, we're sorry where we have added things to the cross, thinking it will make us more holy and righteous and good. But Jesus, it's you. You're the one who does it cutting away. You're the one who does it spiritual circumcision. You're the one who has defeated death. You're the one who has paid that debt. You're the one who has made us alive, not us. So all we need is you, Jesus. In fact, maybe that's a cry of your heart, a prayer you want to pray, just wherever you are right now. Just say, Jesus, you're all I need. Wherever you are right now, I want you to think about your life. What ritual do you believe you need to do in order to be saved? What laws do have you believe you need to keep in order for God to love you? What sin have you believed you cannot be forgiven of in your life? It's too great for God's grace. What lofty spiritual idea from your feelings have you made a reality? Well, can we today bring all of those things to the cross? And can we discount them? Can we discard them? Can we put them aside and say, Jesus, you are enough. You are all I need. I need nothing else but you, and I have all that I need because I have you. Church, with every eye closed, I believe there's some of you listening to this, and you feel stuck because you don't have Jesus yet. You realize that you're still dead, and what you desperately need is a resurrection. Well, the good news is Jesus is offering that to you today. He wants to give you that new life. He wants to give you that resurrection. It's free and all you have to do is receive it. It's not based on your efforts and your goodness. It's based on His efforts, His goodness. And so if you haven't prayed that before, if you want to become a Christian today, if you want to embrace that gift and be saved, I want to pray with you. It's all I'm going to do. And just so I know who I'm praying with, all I want you to do with every eye closed is put up your hand and then put it down again. You can do that now. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Wow, hands all over this room. Thank you. Beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. Thank you, God. He's bringing people home. 
Church, can you pray this with me? Let's all pray together in support of those doing it for the first time. Say, Father God, thank you for your love. Thank you for saving me. I'm so sorry of how I've lived. Apart from you, forgive me for my sin. And thank you that right now by faith, I'm forgiven. You're making me new because Jesus Christ, I believe in you. I believe you are the Son of God, that you lived and died and rose again. So I willingly and I joyfully give my life to you. I hold nothing back. You are the Lord of my life and I choose to follow you, Jesus, from this day and into eternity. In the name of Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen. Amen. Let's give those guys a hand. And for those who did it online, well done. You have honestly made the best decision. This is the only thing you had to get right in your time on earth. You've done it. The most important thing that you needed to get right, you've done. So well done. We're so, so excited for your journey. And we don't want you to walk this road alone. So if you pray that prayer, on your way out, there's going to be ushers at the door. And they've got a flyer, a little brochure. Please take it. It's free. And in there's some ideas for some next steps. Uh, we've got a tear-off on there where you can write your details. Please write your details on that tear-off. Hand that slip back at the information desk. And uh, let's just do life with you. Well done. I'm so proud of you guys. Let's give them a hand one more time. <laughs> and for those of you who are online, if you want a copy of that brochure and those same details, just go onto our website, nlchurch.coza. And there's a salvation button on the homepage right there. Just click on that salvation button. All that same stuff is right there for you guys. So thank you. Let's hand over to Louis. Thanks, Louis. Thanks so much, Ryan.